Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage here in Berlin and beyond. With me in this very room, at a more or less safe distance, is Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Darbisher. Hello, it's very nice to have you here. I know, isn't it crazy? This is the first time we've recorded in the same place for about two years. It's very exciting. It's kind of wild, yes. <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's nice. Um, it seems like you and I and... Well, Florian, soon, uh, we've all been really busy with dead lady stuff, and we have been recording new tales of wonderful women that we will bring you in the podcast soon. Give us a little uh, wrap-up of what we've been doing and what we're going to be doing. Well, we've since our last podcast, we've had two live shows, I believe. So we had one at a special translatorial event, uh, the Translationale, which is really hard to pronounce. But it was a three-day translation festival by literary translators highlighting our work i have to say as a literary translator and then we had a regular show like about half an hour later it felt like <laughs> which which we were planning to do outside but the weather was not planning to do that so we went back into our uh Akut studio again for who knows how long which felt very strange but also very good and, uh, of course, we um, adhered to all the rules in there, and they have a fabulous vent ventilation system. And ventilation, as we know, is uh, very important. V for ventilation. And we have another show coming up on the 30th of November, live in Akud in Mitte. I think that's pretty certain to be indoors as well. Yes, yes. It would be a little chilly at this stage to be outside. Yeah, it was, it was really fun, and... Um, we had a lot of people there. Like, I was surprised. I mean, you know, they were spaced out. They were wearing masks. But still, it was like, you look out and, oh my gosh, an audience. Yeah, but it didn't it feel great? It did. It did. And I gave a presentation there that's um, going to be on the podcast in the near future. And actually, we're going to have your uh, transnationale presentation uh, next episode, I think. So uh, we'll be catching up with those. But first, we're going to go back in time for this episode, all the way back to 2019, to catch up with our delightful Dead Lady Show co-founder, Florian Dowsens. Yes, and as well as being the show's co-founder and host, along with myself, of most of our live shows, Florian is also an editor and a translator and a teacher at Bard College Berlin. So the presentation you're about to hear was part of Bard College Berlin's cultural event, which is called the Pankumenta, fabulously named for the Panko district of the city where the school is um, located. Yes, although that's not where the live show was, actually. That was in Neukölln. <laughs> and there were also students giving short presentations about their own dead ladies at this event, which was great. And there are a lot of enthusiastic students cheering and gently heckling, I would say, <laughs> in the audience. Uh, noisy enthusiasm, I like to call it. And it makes for a great listen, and I think you'll enjoy it. This story is indeed a lot of fun, but there are a few dark moments, as in so many of our ladies' lives. 
And there are, uh, just to let you know, a couple of mentions of suicide and suicide attempts, and we wanted to flag that for you. There are also some visual references in the first few minutes of Florian's presentation as part of a quiz. So we'll have the images for you on our website over at deadlagershow.com podcast if you want to play along. And you can get ready by taking a look at them. So go ahead. Go over there. We'll wait. Okay. You ready? Good. Now, here's Florian on the amazingly eclectic artist... Elsa von Freitag Loringhofen. Whoa! Anybody here from out of town? This is not stand-up. This is feminism. Tonight I'll be talking about Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhofen. I'll start with a short quiz. Can anyone identify the artist who took this picture? Oh. <laughs> I mean this picture uh, of a woman's deconstructed body with like the face and arms replaced by sort of a sex doll paper cutout. Baroness. No. <laughs> but you know, it would have been a good guess. No, not Claude Cahoon. Man Ray? Man Ray, exactly. Uh, the model, however, the woman you see, that is uh, Elsa. Um, the next one is a portrait, and uh, I would like you to guess the artist as well as the person being portrayed, the subject. Baroness is portrayed. It's not the Baroness being portrayed. The Baroness is doing the, she's the artist who, did, who created this piece. In, in 1920, and it's a portrait of Marcel Duchamp. Um, I, I will clarify for the listeners at home, you're looking at a, a wine or cocktail glass filled with some like flaccid feathers <laughs> and uh, party decorations, right? Is that, that seems an accurate description of what we're looking at. So the next one is an easy one. Who made this? Oh, and Baroness <laughs> What was that? It's Marcel Duchamp. <laughs> uh, no, it's not. There was a trick question. This is actually by Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven. This is uh, famously known as Fountain by Marcel Duchamp. It's a urinal ready-made, but it's not by Duchamp. To explain how this happened and how uh, all of you or many of you were taught differently, were taught that this was by a man, I will take you back to 1874 when the real artist was born. Her name was Elsa Hildegard Plötz. <laughs> she grew up in Swinemünde, uh, which is now in Poland, in Swinusche. Her father, who she <laughs> described as a thick-brained Teuton, was a city councillor and real estate developer of sorts who also owned a hotel later on. Uh, Adolf, for that was his name, um, was a terrible husband and abusive father out drinking while Elsa's mother roped her two daughters into dramatic reenactments of Goethe and Heine at home. Uh, Elsa did resemble her dad, Adolf, in one way. They were both scandalously anti-religious. She explains, I was on bad terms with God privately anyway, since long I scorned a silly thing like that, making animals but not taking them into heaven, when often they had such a short life as it was, being mostly eaten. 
Elsa started writing poetry at 12, and she started smoking at 14. Uh, a tall and skinny blonde, she was so anemic as a team, she would became dizzy just by bending down or walking stairs. She graduated at 16, moving to Berlin to become one of the youngest students at the very traditionally minded, oh, this is where she lived in Berlin. It no longer exists, that's why you're looking at an empty field. Uh, she became, so she became a student at the Königliche Kunstschule on Klosterstraße. Sadly, she only got to finish one term because her mother attempted suicide by walking into the Baltic Sea. Soon, Elsa was stuck back home and Adolf sent her mother to a sanatorium. There, Elsa would later write, her mother, slyly giggling, smirking, gay, insisted she wasn't mad. She began to make strange handiwork. Nobody would think of putting together, spoiling elegant material with cheap trash. My mother broke into beautiful, shattered, scintillating, noble pieces. When Ida, her mother, was diagnosed with advanced endometrial cancer, Elsa found out it had been caused by an untreated syphilis infection she'd gotten from Adolf. Uh, Ida died when Elsa was 19, and her father soon remarried. When Adolf turned violent and threatened to put her in, quote, some institution for naughty girls, she escaped using a wash line, very dramatic, and made it back to Berlin. Responding to an ad for girls with good figures, Elsa got a job at the Wintergarten, which you see behind me, the Wintergarten Theater, which is still around on Potsdamer Straße, which was putting up very classy tableau vivants in which largely nude women posed in scenes of a purely artistic nature. <laughs> she toured all over Germany and enjoyed her newfound freedom. As her handwritten memoir has it, I became mensick up to my ear tips, no over the top of my head, permeating my brain, stabbing out of my eyeballs, as yet only anticipatingly playful, but my home dreams of restless longing became possibilities, no certainties. She was soon educated by the other girls in different means of birth control, all of them still very much illegal, and overcame various STDs. Only just 21, Elsa's only marketable skill at this point was posing. So she started a career of sorts as a muse, posing for Melchior Lechter's Orpheus uh, and becoming his mistress, writing, I was the jewel and precious of his studio. He did homage to me in every way, except the money way. <laughs> he was the first in a series of artists Elsa got romantically involved with, a great many of them gay. Um, here's Lechter, there's playwright Ernst Hart, of sculptor and photographer Richard Schmitz, no pictures exist, though Elsa also had an affair with her brother Oscar, who would describe Elsa in his memoirs like this. His brother, the middle one. Wait, no, but it was, well, not Elsa's brother, it was the, the guy's brother. Exactly, so, sorry. <laughs> Oscar Schmitz, Richard Schmitz's brother, also slept with Elsa and wrote this about her. She had an unusually hard but almost beautiful face, arranged in quattrocentric fashion. Her straw-colored hair lay tight around her temples, the head covered by a somewhat adventurous Panama hat, as if she despised the decorative frills of loops and flowers that adorned ladies' hats a la Francaise. Her clothing was austere, which suited the thin lips and the strong but well-formed hands. 
She was not heavy, even though she wore unusually heavy jewels, an antique signet ring so large that it seemed to contain a secret compartment for poison. <laughs> Although she seemed to despise an essentially attractive charm, she was more provocative than the sweet pastel beauty of the courtesan. Intriguing, right? <laughs> in early 1900, she moved to Dachau, at that point an innocent artist colony near the very happening Munich. She writes, I now wished to become a dashing, successful, and fervent female artist of applied art. It just being the time in Germany of uprearing against the degraded nonsense of modern factory style, as well as against imitated or true antiquity. In Munich, she falls for the charms of Jugendstil architect August Endel, and in 1901, Elsa proposes. Very modern. After the wedding, they move first to Wannsee and then to Berlin-Seelendorf. And Elsa changes her name to Elsa T. Endel. Her husband would be August C. Endel, T supposedly being the Chinese word for yellow, the, the color of royalty, and C the male equivalent. Yet although her husband was doing really well in Berlin, he did the, the first courtyard of the Hakkashehöfe, the marriage was a dud and August was impotent or sexually uninterested. <laughs> to save their marriage, he sent Elsa to a sanatorium to have her womb massaged. <laughs> but when he later introduced Elsa to the tall and elegant Felix Paul Greve, she was smitten, quickly negotiating an open marriage and chasing him for a year. As the translator of Oscar Wilde and André Gide, Felix certainly also flirted with homosexuality, uh, but on <laughs> Christmas Eve of 1902, Elsa had her way with him. Enraptured by Elsa, Felix sneakily convinced his longtime companion, Hermann, to pay for Felix's solo trip to Italy while secretly taking Elsa and her husband along. While Felix and Elsa stayed at the Grand Hotel, her husband was relocated to a small hostel nearby, <laughs> where he botched a suicide attempt just days into the trip. The new couple's response, they gave him a bicycle and sent him on his way. <laughs> Felix, meanwhile, was still haunted by the specter of Oscar Wilde, writing, he followed me across the sea into my sweetheart's chamber. Dear hours of whispering love has he deprived me of by shooting satirical arrows between our lips. Yet Elsa's husband and Oscar were not the only ones standing in the new lover's way. Uh, Hermann uh, found out about the whole scam that Felix was playing and lured him to Bonn where he was immediately arrested. With Felix in prison for a whole year, it was complicated, he was in prison for a year, and uh, Elsa was alone again in Palermo, of all places. She writes, the true trouble was the physical abstinence. It was excruciatingly painful to me. I had to make poems again. <laughs> and not only that, she wrote letters to Felix to express her sex trouble, as she called it. She wrote uh, that she, she, she wrote him these letters until he had to beg me to be less expressive, more conventional in my descriptions for the sake of the prison officials becoming outraged or demoralized. <laughs> when Felix was released from prison, a newly henna red-haired Elsa joined him with a, her two dogs as the now prolific translator traveled across Europe, visited H.G. Wells, who he was translating, ending up back in Berlin 
here on Fasanenstrasse, moving in across the street from August, her ex-husband, and they married in 1907. Now, not only are Felix's two novels from these years very strongly based on Elsa's life and letters, uh, it is also highly likely Elsa had a hand in his translations from the English, as a few years later Elsa was scheduled to do a translation of John Keats's letters. By 1909, Felix has had enough of his nomadic life as a novelist and translator, so he staged his own suicide, like you do, <laughs> and snuck off to America. In um, 1910, Elsa followed, $50 in hand, just enough to get her to Pittsburgh, where she met Felix and landed immediately in the pages of the New York Times. <laughs> the headline projected behind me says, she wore men's clothes. Uh, she was arrested for wearing trousers. The article says that Elsa explained that the pants helped her, quote, walk better and keep up with her husband. So Felix took poor Elsa to Sparta, Kentucky, but quickly fled to Canada alone, where he reinvented himself as Frederick Philip Grove, finally finding success and even winning a Governor's General Award, which is a very big deal in Canada. Uh, the Canadians would only find out that he was German 25 years after his death. In 1913, Elsa picked up sticks from Kentucky and moved to New York where she met, and despite probably still being married to Felix, married the 11 years younger Leopold Karl Friedrich Baron von Freitag Loringhoven, a baron, and the impoverished black sheep of an aristocratic German family. Presto, the baroness was born, and suddenly she was 28, not 39. <laughs> I know, it's a life. Um, on her way to City Hall to get married, she found an iron ring that she claimed was a symbol of Venus and made it into her first ready-made, entitled Enduring Ornament. Her marriage, however, did not endure. <laughs> As Leopold left to reclaim his honor by fighting in World War I, taking all of Elsa's life savings with him, the asshat, only to be intercepted on the Atlantic on the way to Europe, becoming a prisoner of war, and killing himself four years after the war. Alone, Elsa worked in factories to make a living, turning back to modeling in 1915 to uh, earn a living. She made a dollar an hour. Elsa more and more was turning her life into a work of art, though. Here she is, posing in what seems to be her tiny uh, studio. At the start of the war, European artists were flooding into the US, and Elsa soon crossed paths with the likes of Man Ray, who we met earlier, Alfred Stieglitz, who would photograph a lot of her pieces, and Marcel Duchamp, or as she would later call him, Marcel Duchit. <laughs> Duchamp, who coincidentally lived in the same building as Elsa, uh, had just shown Nude Descending a Staircase. Oh wait, this is where they lived. And this is Nude Descending a Staircase, very famous. Uh, and he just showed it to much controversy in uh, New York and in Paris and he was tired of painting. But he was so fascinated by Elsa's found objects collection, he would go to her apartment and join her for a lot of late nights chats, like, what is this? Is this art? At this point, Elsa shaved her head, uh, sometimes lacquered it bright red, wearing yellow face powder, black lipstick, long ice cream spoons as earrings, an inverted coal scuttle for a hat, a vegetable grater as a brooch, parrot feathers as fake eyelashes, and even an electric taillight as a bustle or on her bustle. <laughs> if cars can have them, why can't I? 
she said. An artist Elsa once modeled for at the time wrote, having asked me in her harsh, high-pitched German stridency whether I required a model, I told her that I should like to see her in the nude. With a royal gesture, she swept apart the folds of a scarlet raincoat. She stood before me quite naked, or nearly so. Over the nipples of her breasts were two tin tomato cans fastened with a green string around her back. So the bra had just been invented a few years earlier by Mary Phelps Jacob, by the way. Between the two tomato cans hung a very small bird cage and within it a crestfallen canary. Um, Elsa would very often be arrested for her outrageous outfits, not to mention the many, many times she was caught shoplifting. Tired of official restraint, she leapt from patrol wagons with such agility that policemen let her go in admiration. <laughs> Margaret Anderson wrote, with the war heating up, uh, German nationals were suspicious enough, so soon she was arrested as a spy and jailed for three weeks as mentally deranged. There may have been some truth to this latter accusation as she had started to feed the rats in her apartment, but her art became more and more powerful. Here's a visiting artist's description of her studio. It was in an unheated loft on 14th Street. It was crowded and reeking with the strange relics she had purloined over a period of years from the New York gutters. Old bits of ironware, automobile tires, a dozen starved dogs, celluloid paintings, ash cans, every conceivable horror, which to her tortured yet highly sensitized perception became objects of formal beauty. And except for the sinister and tragic setting, it had to meet quite as much authenticity as, for instance, Brancusi's studio in Paris. In 1917, Elsa created this piece out of plumbing supplies entitled God. <laughs> uh, long credited to the work's photographer, it reflected Elsa's feelings about the less than shameful and possibly even divine nature of bodily functions. She also published an essay of sorts on the topic in the Little Review, which was a magazine at the time, which, as you can see behind me, had the tagline, making no compromise with the public taste. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the same magazine that carried her radical poetry alongside Juna Barnes, Hemingway, Williams, Carlos Williams, and very famously, a serialized version of James Joyce's Ulysses. In the essay, Elsa wrote, who wants us to hide our joys? If I can eat, I can eliminate. It is logic. It is why I eat. My machinery is built that way. Why should I, proud engineer, be ashamed of my machinery? If I can write, talk about dinner, pleasure of my palate, with my ease of manner, I can afford also to mention my ecstasies in toilet room. It was also in 1917 that the world first encountered this piece of plumbing, uh, the famous urinal ready-made. Submitted to the exhibition of the American Society of Independent Artists, it was signed, as you can see, R. Mutt. There are many reasons to question Duchamp's authorship of this work. The signature is gender neutral, for one, and if it's a pun, it's probably a German one, right? For Amut, poverty, or Mut, R, as in mother, Mutter. Or perhaps it's meant to be a drinking dish for one of her many dogs. Um, mutts, right? Uh, whatever the case, it certainly fits with the Baroness's scatological found object style. The smoking gun, however, was found in a letter Duchamp wrote to his sister. 
One of my female friends who had adopted the pseudonym Richard Mutt sent me a porcelain urinal as a sculpture. Since there was nothing indecent about it, there was no reason to reject it, he wrote. I know, boo. And Duchamp, in fact, only started to let it be associated with him after Elsa and Alfred Stieglitz, who originally photographed the piece, had died. It was also after Elsa's death that he somehow discovered the extra copies now shamelessly displayed under his name in the museums of Stockholm, San Francisco, London, Kyoto, Paris, etc. That's what I say. Uh, by 1918, Elsa was still living in that dark tenement on 14th Street near the Hudson. She was enraptured by New York City, though, creating this gorgeous piece called Cathedral, a tribute to the jagged New York skyline. This was Elsa's most productive time, working and writing 24-7, yet the artistic climate was changing. The Little Review lost its famous Ulysses lawsuit and was starting to play it safe, and the art world also wasn't open to Elsa's interventions. In 1922, for instance, a gallerist was setting up an exhibition when one morning he found Elsa had, quote, rehung the entire show, each picture at a different angle and one or two upside down, while others lay face down on the carpet. And she was now inveighing in the most truculent manner against the bourgeois spirit of a department store which, in hanging modern art, had achieved the uninspired symmetry of a parking lot. <laughs> she was not about the white box, not Elsa. Another artist, after hiring Elsa to write a review of his show, instead found her lecturing in the crowded gallery, wearing a dress covered in some 80 metal toys, a scrap basket for a hat with a simple but effective garnishing of parsley, and seven small starved and terrified dogs on a single leash. <laughs> she was never paid for these performances, nor for any of her artistic work, only for her modeling. When her resources in New York finally dried up, she was convinced that perhaps in Europe things would be better. Instead, she arrived in an extremely impoverished Berlin in 1923, uh, finding herself unable to get a visa for Paris, where the Americans were having a blast without her. For once, her aristocratic name worked against her, and her husband's family did not respond to her many messages, or attempts at blackmail, as they called it. <laughs> Out of option, she trooped into the French consulate on her 50th birthday. I went to the consulate with a large, sugar-coated birthday cake upon my head with 50 flaming candles lit. I felt just so spunky and affluent. In my ears, I wore sugar plumes or matchboxes, I forget which. Also, I had put on several stamps as beauty spots on my emerald-painted cheeks, and my eyelashes were made of gilded porcupine quills rustling coquettishly at the console, with several ropes of dried figs dangling around my neck. I should have liked to wear gaudy colored rubber boots up to my hips with a ballet skirt of genuine gold paper, white lace paper covering it to match the cake, but I couldn't afford that. I guess that inconsistency in my costume is to blame for my failure to please the officials. Um, her ploy did not work. Um, and now the Plutzes, remember her original family had also disinherited her, Elsa was forced to sell newspapers to make rent, standing for hours on end on this corner of Kurfürstendamm. In the fall of 1923, she wrote, my impression about myself is very bitter. All is the fault of being a woman, being an artist, and only for the last reason I still linger on thinking, I still have a chance. 
For my art is there. I am there, but life is suspended. After stints in a home for women and a psychiatric hospital, Elsa's last stop in Berlin was in Pankow. Yes. I mean, tragic also, <laughs> to be honest. Then in 1926, an unexpected inheritance and an even more unexpected, very sudden visa uh, brought her to Paris, where she moved into a hotel with her three dogs, two of which she had to hide in a closet. And yet, although Hemingway was championing her and Juna Barnes was helping her edit her memoirs and her poetry, Elsa here still was forced to turn to modeling to survive, now also teaching it. And although she received some funding from the Guggenheims, who were very impressed slash baffled by her sort of Dada application that she handed in, she didn't realize she wasn't actually allowed to work on her visa, so she was expelled from France. Yet she didn't leave. <laughs> Instead, hiding out at a dingy hotel where one night she did not turn off her gas before going to bed and was found the next morning alongside her dog. I know, sorry. It's very sad. Uh, the funeral ceremony was attended by only a scattering of friends. Elsa's literary executor, Juna Barnes, would provide the following obituary. On the 14th of December, sometime in the night, Elsa came to her death by gas, a stupid joke that had not even the decency of maliciousness. In most cases, death is neither more nor less than that which we must suffer. In some lonely instances, it becomes high tragedy. She was, as a woman, amply appreciated by those who had loved her in her youth. Mentally, she was never appropriately appreciated. If you want to know more about Elsa, check out Irene Gamble's biography called Baroness Elsa, Gender, Dada, and Everyday Modernity, and the gorgeous edition of Elsa's writing called Body Sweats, that Gamel edited with Suzanne Zalazzo. I would like to leave you tonight with a poem of Elsa's called Pastoral Improved that she dedicated to photographer Berenice Abbott. I should say lesbian photographer Berenice Abbott. She's pretty dope. Who Elsa also made a visual portrait of. So this is the poem. She's a gape up sky, ogling wry, uncouth shape, quilt beggar skirt near pauper home, up country sitting sheaf, smoking surreptitious cigarette this chill March Eve. Well, say she of pasty melancholy, trick memory strolling over from Paris, glooming down Germany obsolete, spotting me her mimicry sinister, some queer dope sister. Don't mope, all misanthrope. I blame thy nether lip slope, not one bit kit nope. Unfortunate, that's what I calls it, I'm blue as sin hell in my skin, to contemplate such waggish minx's disemboweled grin, curse thy pit, shit, I'll turn in. Thank you. Florian Dowson's on Elsa von Freitag Lordenhofen, recorded at the Two Yellow Chairs Cafe as part of the Pankumente Festival from Bard College Berlin. If you're looking out for any dressing up ideas for Halloween or just everyday life, I hope you got a good bit of inspiration from Elsa's creative wardrobe. I know I did. In German, I suppose that she'd be called a Lebenskünstler. I like to think of that as putting the two words together, life, artist, her life was art, but it's really not, I suppose, the same meaning. How would you translate that, Katie? Oh. Well, 
Pascal is somebody who kind of gets through life by the skin of their teeth, I would say, in by kind of using artful methods, let's say. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite sort of a term of an endearment, but it's, uh, yeah, you wouldn't say it to your mum. <laughs> well, I think that works for the Baroness as well, and I also guess it has maybe the meaning of hedonist, which works too. Yeah, yes, it does actually, yeah, thank you, yeah. And that works for her as well. I mean, the Baroness is a woman of many facets. Yeah, certainly, yes. Many, many facets. You can see some of those facets of Elsa and other links where you can find out more about her and her art and life at our website, deadladiesshow.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on social media at Dead Ladies Show and please share, rate and review the show as it helps others to find our podcast. Yes, please do. The Dead Ladies Show was founded by Florian Dassens and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced and edited by me, Susan Stone. Thanks to Florian and to Katie and to all the Barn College students who cheered their way onto the tape. <laughs> we'll be back next month to introduce you to another fabulous dead lady. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Support for this episode of the Dead Ladies Show podcast comes from the Berliner Zanat.